You're listening to Bedroom Beethoven's, where notable music makers break down stories accompanied by songs and melodies documenting growth through their 10,000-hour journey. And me? Well, my name is Cello, your host. Hey everybody, welcome to episode 78 of the podcast. My guest this week is... My name is Mark DeClive-Low and I'm a keyboard player, producer, composer, performer... Collaboration-wise, it's been a lot of my, a lot of my dream lists. Um, like musicians like Pino Palladino and Harvey Mason and Sheila E. A lot of the UK broken VOGs, Bembe Segway, Four Hero, Rest of Soul, IG Culture, and then cast like DJ Spinner, John Robinson, Wajid. I mean, it's a really kind of eclectic crew of you know jazz musicians, hip hop producers, house music producers even like drum and bass junglers and just kind of runs the whole gamut so it's a it's an eclectic life Episode 78 with Mark the Clive Lowe, one of today's contemporary musical masters. A duology two-album release is kind of the focus of the second half of the interview. It sees him a deep dive into his Japanese roots and ancestry through the lens of jazz and electronica. An immersive and evocative soundtrack transporting the listener through his own experience of Japan, along with his love for its history and mythology. So we chat about that, as well as a litany of other topics, including how he plans to move forward once the craziness that is 2020 starts to lift, if ever. At this point, I don't even know. Which is a good segue into telling you how appreciative I am that you guys are tuning in. Podcasts are taking a hit as people aren't commuting nowadays, but I imagine most are here because you enjoy Mark's music and you want to learn more about him. So nevertheless, let me tell you guys that this podcast is always available wherever podcasts can be found. And the website is bedroombeethovens.com. And if you want to support me the way you support Mark's Patreon, for instance, patreon.com slash bedroombeethovens, you know, granted, it's not as cool as his, but if you want to support the show and get access to early episodes and whatnot, you could throw a few quarters my way. I think we're about halfway through the summer. Thanks, everyone, for being here. Episode 78 with MDCL. Sawubona, my friend. Oh yeah, Sawubona. And you know, it's a bit strange because when you when you first come to LA, you and your son can go to the Staples Center, you can watch Kobe Bryant versus the Rockets and <laughs> how much has changed in the last calendar year, man. You know, Kobe's not here anymore. The Staples Center hasn't even been filled in the last oh my half God. year. Uh even even the little Tokyo neighborhood in LA which houses the Blue Whale, it's closed down, you know? Yeah, I mean it's 
I mean, obviously, no one could have foreseen what this year has brought to us. And um, I think, like, I guess we definitely took all that stuff for granted. That's for sure. The Blue Well you mentioned particularly, that's a, a little jazz club in downtown LA, a little Tokyo. That's It's very dear to my heart. I love playing there. And I really, I really hope it pulls through. Like, you know, so many places out of business now. I don't know. I don't know how it's going to work. Well, I mean, to add insult to injury, I'm in Texas, you're in California, and we're on the top five list of states who are handling this the worst that have the most cases, while New Zealand has zero cases. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the temptation to go home is there, for sure. Um, but, you know, I, I, I love what's possible being in the States. And there's something actually right now where you know, the, between the pandemic and how that affects, you know, the capitalist structure through to the uprising and how that's affecting racial justice and social justice and change. It's like, you know, you're kind of, you're seeing history in the making right now. And I think that's pretty amazing and potent. You called it though, back, back in November of 2016, when Trump was elected, you called it, um, 53% of white women voted for Trump and 47% of voters didn't even vote. The election was only lost by 80,000 votes. So, I mean, here's the eerie part. You said, and I quote, the mask is now off. All that hatred bred into white America that has been there the entire time will come out of hiding and in plain sight. And we will look back on that day and see it as the start of a revolution and the birth of a new nation, end quote. And I think the, the past month and a half, we haven't seen these levels of protest and an extreme demand for equality and change, not in this lifetime, at least not since the civil rights movement. So I think you called it. Man, that, I said that? <laughs> <laughs> in a public facebook post of, uh, yeah wow okay well i guess i mean that was a, a real feeling at the time and it's interesting where we're at i mean you know you put you put the the head of the country as a person who has no leadership skill and just incites you know divisive thinking and action and this is what we come to but at the same and, and at the same time i feel like that's what had to happen in order to get to this moment where change is really possible you know i mentioned like new zealand has zero cases I, i'm kind of familiar like how maybe they operate in i guess a dynamic with the state so you grew up in auckland your mom's japanese and your dad lived in japan for 20 years is that correct yeah that's right so that's very interesting because in new zealand there's no real strong cultural identity as a modern society well it's it is really interesting because for me growing up you know i was born in 74 so growing up through the 80s as a biracial person in new zealand it was really confusing. Like on my my European side, on the the white side, there was no culture to latch onto because it was slowly kind of pulling away from England, even though that was the motherland. And on my Japanese side, there was all this culture to latch onto. But I was growing up, you know, as a New Zealander, so it wasn't until a little later that I got more interested in in that side of it. But then at this point now, it's interesting because I feel like New Zealand as a nation has culturally really taking care to respectfully adopt the Maori culture in some in, in in many ways. Like, you know, basic language as far as greetings and stuff like that and how it's and how the Pacific Island how the Pacific Island and Maori accent in English has become the New Zealand accent norm. You know, things like that have really paradigm shifted in my lifetime and since I've been out of New Zealand. So it's quite amazing to go back there and see this 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 moment in time which is i mean it's a melting pot there man like you know for me growing up being one of the very few biracial people around around me um to seeing 
this this amazing open immigration policy to the Pacific Islands and then to Hong Kong when the UK gave it back to China and then more of Asia in more recent years Brazil there's this whole kind of like immigrant melting pot which has become very kind of very intertwined like in the in the next in in, in my generation and the next, and the younger generation too it's it's amazing to see man and there's and there's there's also a difference between Japanese and Japanese American. I think that's important to realize. It's not the same thing. And oh, I, yeah. I bet the first time you went to Japan when you were just a boy, how familiar it seemed. Just just getting out of the plane, I bet it smelled like your house in the airport. <laughs> you, you know, in the airport, maybe it smelled like Japan. And, and I bet you walked out of that plane and thought, you know, this is familiar to me, even though you haven't, you didn't even see anything yet. Man, you're so right. Japan, I guess everywhere does, but Japan definitely smells a certain way, and those smells were not foreign to me but i do remember that they had a a new intensity and so you know i go to japan every summer from age 10 pretty much and you know grew up very much in touch with my family there and the language but it wasn't until i went there at the end of high school um i did one my last year of high school in yokohama Uh, you know i'm like 17 i'm thinking i know about this i'm half japanese i know this culture I got such major culture shock, man, <laughs> because it's deep. It's like, you know, it's like any culture. It's like we can feel by studying or by actually directly relating to it in a family environment, like from a from a removed point of view like I did. We, it's easy to feel like, yeah, I know that. But, you know, culture is such a multifaceted, nuanced, layered, deep thing. And and like any other country's culture, it's it's an onion. You can just keep peeling back the layers and there's more to, there's more there, you know? <laughs> Small things too, like how people grab a piece of paper. You know, there are things that are more obvious, like taking someone's business cart with two hands. Mm. You don't do that in the states. Sure, for sure. Yeah. Did your Did your siblings deal with it better than yourself? Um. So the he, he was he was the the what's the word like the the archetypal eldest son, good at everything. Just you know. <laughs> so with Japanese, he he really went in on that. My middle brother, he actually ran the other way. He denied being. Part Japanese and didn't learn the language, and and then later on really regretted that. So I guess each of us had a very different experience. Okay, because I know you had an older brother who kind of who kind of played the piano with you, or or your father kind of forced you guys to start with an instrument. Oh yeah, you know, dad, dad was denied lessons when he was about well as a kid. So when he was thirteen, I remember he tell a story. He's thirteen, and his father, who's also a musician, was like, "Okay, I guess you can learn." learn piano now and so he's 13 he's like thinking it's too late it's too late yeah <laughs> so so he and he would he would quote this at his like when we have friends around for dinner and he'd be having a few drinks and telling us stories he's like you know from that moment i was i i, I thought come hell or high water if i ever have children they'll bloody well learn musical instruments <laughs> I was the same way. Have you ever heard of the Suzuki method of teaching? Totally, piano? man. Totally, yeah. That's what I grew up on. Oh wow! Yeah. So, so for people who are listening that don't know, people created this method to teach children music as if they were being immersed in a foreign language. So I was exposed to music. I learned to listen to the piece before any attempt at re- reproducing mm-hmm. the song, mm-hmm. which I think is bad because I had a hell of a time learning how to read sheet music, and I remember wowing the kids but disappointing the adults with my playing because of it. So it, it had this interesting <laughs> dynamic. Man, I tell you, I actually, if I could do it all again, I wish I had learned Suzuki. Hey, that's that's great praise. Because, I mean, you know, you're, you're teaching a kid to be immersed as if they were learning a foreign language, and I never learned a foreign language. So that's the closest I ever got. 
That's beautiful, man. Because you know, music music is an oral tradition. It's not a it's not a visual. It's not a form that you read. You know, we have music notation, so we can communicate. So we could communicate before you could record music, and it's standardized. But you know, music is oral. This, you know. <laughs> so I, I just I love the Suzuki Method's whole premise that. Yeah, before you play this, your ear is going to learn it. Well, with all great musicians, I think John Lennon put the guitar down for 10 years. You kind of stopped playing for a decade as yeah, well. Yeah. And I, I think there's a lot to unpack there because the parallels of, of playing piano again, playing it because you want to versus being forced to practice as a kid. I think, number one, was it was it like riding a bike or did you have to relearn a lot of things? And maybe number two, now that you're playing again from the perspective of more enjoyment, how did that transform your playing? Yeah, man. I mean, there's a, there's a lot to unpack there, like you say. And I mean, the, the point when I stopped playing piano, I was still playing keys. But I think for non-musicians, it, it does. it's worth saying that the acoustic piano and a keyboard are completely different instruments. The, the interface is the same, but the acoustic piano you're dealing with you know, wood and strings and like it's a it's physical it's very physical and the human and the human interface with that, you know, there's no USB or nothing, it's real, you know. So add on that on top of that for me that my dad you know, forced me on this instrument and I never chose it. You know, I wasn't like the kid who went to a gig, saw the bass player, heard the bass sound and was like, man, I'm gonna play bass. You know, I never had that moment. So I did have that moment later on with drum machines and jungle and house music and hip-hop and basically everything I could hear in the club, which was, in my mind, as far away from the piano as you could go. So once I was, I was living in the UK and working in the in the broken beat scene with producers and doing keyboard sessions and then producing my own tracks, that became, became my instrument, like, you know, chopping, chopping samples and beats and playing synths and that kind of thing. So then, yeah, I come to L.A. after a decade in, in the U.K. And um, actually, my ex-wife, amazing singer-songwriter, Nia Andrews, she was having her debut gig, and she was like, I want you to play piano. And I said, no, no, I'm gonna, I'll, play, I'll play Rhodes. I'm not playing piano. She's like, it's my gig. I'll, I want you to play piano. <laughs> so I played, there was a baby grand in the venue. I played piano for that gig. Let me get this straight. You were not the only one. And it was a real moment of reconnection. Um, it it felt like, oh yeah, this is it's like this is my old friend. You know, this is my instrument. There's no escaping that for me. And so then I, as I played it more, and I'd start doing um, actually jazz gigs in LA uh, as a piano player, which kind of freaked me out. Um, <laughs> I found that I'd I'd lost a lot of technical facility that I had ten years earlier. So I, I couldn't. I couldn't play as cleanly or fast or, my, you know, my fingers just hadn't been doing that work. So that was one thing. And then the other massive thing was that I realized now I was playing with the ears of a producer, which is a very different thing to playing. Well, I guess it's the ideal playing as a musician, but for a lot of musicians, it's not like that. So going through production and learning more about that and going through a form in the UK through club music and broken beat where, you know, every sound is functional and necessary and every part is, you, you could, there's no fluff. 
basically. So it was the the challenge there was being as musical as possible while being as functional as possible in this kind of progressive dance floor scene. And so taking that kind of mentality, or even like a hip hop sample loop mentality, and then applying that to playing piano for me was was a paradigm shift. And now it's evolved into where you can take all of those elements and infuse or involve your culture. And I had the pleasure of interviewing Mike Shinoda once, and I always appreciated but wanted more tracks like Kenji, which tells the tale of internment of Japanese Americans during World War II. I love music that infuses a little bit of heritage, a little bit of history. My father came from Japan in 1905. He was 15 when he immigrated from Japan. He, he, he worked until he was able to buy the stack oh, and yeah. build the store. I mean, that was so special for me to, to do my project um, called Heritage. It's like a two album release last year. And, um, it you know, I'd, be, I'd been wanting to, to do something incorporating more of that side of my, my heritage and roots. Um, but I didn't, I guess I didn't quite when I was younger, understand how to connect it through my artistry. Um, and then in, I think, 2017, I was commissioned by Grand Performances, which was a, a, music, a music commissioning presenting organization here in LA to do a show um, which, which had to fulfill, actually, their requirement to present some Asian heritage programming. So I was like, well, I, I have something that I've always wanted to do. So if you'll let me do it. And they commissioned me for this show, which was called Mirai no Rekshi, which is actually what I wrote when I wrote most of them, the material for Heritage. And I brought in some different collaborators, um, Kaoru Watanabe, great Shinobue flute player and taiko drummer, uh, Yumi Kurosawa, great koto player, and then Shingo too as well. Um, he was on the Vestax Fader board, kind of effects and electronic percussion, and, and on, on mic a bit as well. And then out of my band, and we had this whole experience of music, which I put together for it and wrote for it with a lot of story. And I'd, ne- I'd never brought storytelling into my work as a performer. You know, if I'm doing a, if I'm doing an electronic set in the club, you know, I'm not talking. It's like this is this is a dance floor event. And then I might be doing a jazz show where I might talk a little bit, but you know, the music wasn't as as meaningful to me or as personal. So I'm creating a body of work that really takes from my experiences growing up biracially Japanese and New Zealander, the the Japanese fairy tales and and folk songs I'd learn, my experiences going to Japan over the last 35 years. You know, these were all things I could pull from. And it was it was actually the first time I felt like, well, the first time in a long time I felt like, oh, here's something that's so honestly personal. To the point, right before I released it as Heritage, as the albums, I was a little scared of releasing it. I was like, "I'm." It's kind of like I'm. I'm putting my myself on my my inner self on show here. In 2005, you released an album called Tides Arising. Also in 2005, Mike Shinoda released an album called The Rising Tide. Hey, and he he used that to be <laughs> his personal album. And then I'm, I re-listened to your album, uh-huh. and it's always a nice touch to include your son's heartbeat at the end of the song, right before he was born. That makes it more personal. Yeah. So it's it always it's it's interesting to hear that th- that heritage was well maybe the reason why it's not scary for for Mike Shinoda to release that project, and maybe more so for you is because, like you said, you're vulnerable. It showcases you putting your heritage in a positive light, showcasing your composing and keyboarding skills front and center. Like I can't give. 
the rising tide a negative review. Oh, a song about after Japan bombed Pearl Harbor, many Japanese Americans, including his family, were forced into camps in retaliation. Mm-hmm. Pfft, that's stupid. You know what I mean? You can't it, you can't give an album like that a negative no, review. It, it just is. <laughs> yeah, important songs like revolutionary songs, they aren't subjected to criticism. Whereas totally. if you put your heritage and your talents out front for people to hear, see, and absorb, that's it's scary. You know what I mean? Nobody is going to say Public Enemy sucks. Right, exactly. <laughs> but you know, and and it was it was great for me because I feel like you know I I'm I'm on this I've, I've gone through this journey that still continues, but it's gone through you know what being really young and wanting to be a straight ahead jazz musician. Actually, before that, even momentarily wanting to be Teddy Riley and you know falling deep into that that whole world, and then later on falling into club music and wanting to, wanting to do that and kind of learning learning a lot along the way but oftentimes not really knowing where do i find myself in this and you know i think jazz is a really interesting point of reference because there's so much aspiration growing up if you're into that music as a musician that you're aspiring directly to the black american music legacy and you can't you know you can't be that if you're not that you know, you can play the music and understand where it comes from, but to to really aspire to it, I think the lesson in it is to you know to aspire to that depth of personal expression, and you know that that is what jazz is, that is what Black American music is. So for me, I've recognized that where I meet that, whether it's my love for for Dilla or my love for Thelonious Monk, whoever it might be. Whereas, and maybe when I was younger, I might have tried to emulate that. Now it's more like, okay, I recognize that as a musician, as an artist, I meet that music, and there's a space between it and me. Like I can't, I can't be it, and it can't be me. So that space in between us, the way I interact with that music and my influences and inspirations, that that becomes the defining, the, the defining texture and characteristic of the expression. So. I'm realizing that I'm finding you know, my own voice through, you know, coming up to coming up to Japanese tradition and knowing that I'm I'm not full Japanese and I'm I didn't grow up there fully, so there's a difference. But the space where that difference is is where I can find my expression. How did the '90s hip hop? kind of go into that you know you were listening to a lot of five percent nation music were you conscious of that (laughs) okay so (laughs) no i wasn't okay so i'm growing up in i'm growing up in auckland new zealand in in the like you know through the 80s late 80s and the early 90s i started high school in 88 89 something 88 and so you know i was basically in a very eurocentric culture so at school, like at high, the high school I started when I started there, you know, you'd have all the all the Pacific Island kids would be kind of in their own crew, and then all the the Chinese immigrant kids would be in their own crew, and that would leave the Europeans basically that would have the majority crew. Um, now it's all very very intertwined, like I said before. But so here I am, like not knowing where I fit in. Like you know, there wasn't a Japanese crew. 
per se. And for the Euro- so I was closest to the the Palangi, the European crew, the Pakeha crew, and um and that community found me a bit different. Like you know, it's like well, you're half Asian. That's weird, kind of thing. Um, and so you know, 13 years old, I'm I think I was lo- and I was looking for different cultural touchstones. And also at that age where you start to, you know, one starts to rebel against the powers that raised you. My dad was very dominant and strict. So I I think subconsciously I was looking for ways to push against him. And I found that in music. You know, it started my boy Joe, a friend of mine at school. We're like 14. He walks up to me before school with his has Walkman, puts his Walkman earphones on me. And it was the first guy album. It was Teddy's Jam. <laughs> and that just I'd never heard anything like it blew my mind, absolutely changed my life in a split second. You know, it's all my friends are listening to like, you know, UK guitar pop and stuff like that. And it just, it never resonated with me. I don't know why, but this just totally resonated. And so I'd start going to the record store and started hanging out with people who are making music and going to, you know, I, I went to a, I remember I went to a talent show, like a talent quest, talent show thing when I was about that age. And I had some keyboards and a drum machine, kind of a rudimentary version of what I do now, but I had no idea what I was doing. Um, but I was making sound. And there was a crew of of kids, like Samoan kids, who came over and they're like, man, I love what you do. And you're like, you know, come around to the house. So I went around to their house and they were all making like hip hop and new jack swing. And there was DJs and dancers and rappers and singers and musicians. And <laughs> I'd never experienced anything like that. And also the the vibrancy of creative freedom, friendship, and cultural openness and all that was the antithesis to what I'd been raised in. So for me, that kind of started my love affair with hip-hop and just realizing that there was community in it and there was culture in it and it wasn't, it, it wasn't about conform, conforming to traditionalist rules. But but there's no better way to piss off your dad as a teenager than to listen to Brand Nubian. Man, listen, listen, listen. I so he he'd go out and so I I basically wasn't allowed to use the record player. So um so I had tapes in my room, but I, I had a lot of vinyl. So he'd go out and I jump straight on the turntable, and I I'll never forget. Like I had I had it takes a nation of millions just blasting <laughs> on the record player. And I didn't hear him come home. And so <laughs> I'm lying on the floor in front of the stereo or something. And he's just standing over me. I turn around and see him. And it wasn't even a conversation. It was just, <laughs> you know, I knew that I had not impressed him and I better shut this music off. And But at the same time, I think about it and it's like, maybe maybe he couldn't even hear the lyrics. I don't yeah, know. It, yeah, it was just like, noise, you know, there's a, sure. quite possibly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but wow yeah what a great story i i had a similar story with my mom but i, I oh, yeah? she, she, anything that had parental advisory sticker she would break my tapes oh my um, god <laughs> and i was listening to the fujis and the fujis now is heralded as this uh very elegant introspective totally conscious rap but at the time you you, you couldn't make my mom frown any harder than than put pros and Wyclef together. So wow. I, very interesting to always look back and see how parents or, or the, the last generation reacts to your music now. And, and honestly, I have, I have done this with my son as well. Like, <laughs> you know, there's, you know, I kind of, there's a point, 
there's a point in contemporary music and like in, in contemporary rap where you know lyrically I'm just like it's overwhelming for me sometimes. And so especially when he was a bit younger, I just felt like that's not the content I want my son's head filled with. And I and but I understand I really understood the love for the production sound. And I enjoyed it too. But then when as a parent, like listening to it, digesting what's being said, I'm like, I don't know about that, you know. But now he's like 17 now. So I'm like, okay, cool. No, we can just listen to whatever. <laughs> um, but it just it did it wasn't lost on me how ironic that was. Yeah. But what's cool though is your son is in a unique position to where he can put on heritage one and two, and it's almost like this uh genealogy lesson for him, you know. I I, I think after Heritage Two was completed. You were you continue to learn stories from your mom, and I think when you perform heritage, sometimes you go into detail about the inspiration behind one, and and there are brutal stories. You know, there's that one where um, uh, she remembers uh, having to get into the bomb shelter trenches in front of her house as a small child in World War II, and U.S. planes would fly overhead, dropping bombs on on the residency. I think it was just the house next door. So maybe maybe yeah, Heritage man. Three is 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 like your mom's memoirs and album form. <laughs> there is um, it won't be Heritage Three, but in a sense, it is Heritage Three, which is going to actually be my my dad passed away almost almost ten years ago, and he wrote his memoirs, and so the twist his twenty years in Japan from nineteen fifty three to seventy three as the country was rebuilding post war and his experience as a New Zealander experiencing all that right there that's all very heavily documented so that that could be the next one um and and that would be for me that would be really nice to to make peace with our relationship as well you know how how my dad raised me and how i feel about that and to actually go really go into his his world from age you know 23 to 43 and and you know meet that yeah and and like your 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 grandmother had a had a passion for european opera which gave birth to Baroque music at totally. the end of the 16th century. So maybe you could have a track that incorporates that. Uh, but, but I mean, look at me giving you suggestions. There we go. I mean, you're the master. <laughs> I'm out of bounds. But it's, I mean, it's really, it's really amazing to to find this as a as an artistic pursuit. Like it was, I spent a long time, you know, especially, you know, I, I love making club music. I, I still do a lot of remixes and productions, but that, especially in my in my mid twenties, coming through that, coming through that world, oftentimes it's kind of like it's the search for the perfect beat, and you know you're trying to find the underground hit that's going to resonate and cross over somewhat, or that it's it's kind of very much in that culture. But to to at this point really be reflecting more on my ancestral lineage and my own inner journey, and applying all these things that I love to it, I mean that's I'm really grateful to be able to do that, and to also have have some audience support which encourages me that this is stories these are stories worth sharing but and, and then at the same time you know like you're still uh absorbing hip-hop too and your parents are probably seeing this rebellious side like we covered and your parents didn't they didn't understand it and they didn't approve of it why can't they you know why can't he just play the piano why can't he just play gershwin but in the late <laughs> 90s herbie hancock came out with gershwin's world and maybe that's the push that the next generation needs you know you take a musician that you admire who's covering scores that might be a little left of your interest and all of a sudden your ears perk up and, and you you kind of want to see what yeah it's man about. i mean that speaks to to me that speaks to responsibility responsibility in artistry 
um, and is something I feel really passionately about that, you know, we are when whatever, whatever field of work or walk of life that you're presenting to the world, you know, we're laying information for the next generation It's inspiration, it's education. And, you know, I, for sure it can be funny and entertaining and stupid and all sorts of stuff. But in the, in the greater analysis, I think, and this, this moment in, you know, social history right now is showing us, you know, that we really have a responsibility to the next generation. Um, so yeah, that can come through music for me. It's like, you know, just even a little bit, then that's awesome. Well, and also I think your generation is the, is, is the last generation to where, like you woke up one morning at 17 years old and then you went to bed that same night having seen Herbie Hancock, Wayne Shorter, and Tony Williams. And then boom, <laughs> it's life altering. You know, I don't think kids this generation are going to go see, you know, young Jeezy and little Wayne and then go to bed and be like, bam, I'm going to be a rapper. This is what I'm going to do. I think it's more resonating with you. You know, I love hearing stories of kids just getting hit upside the head with music and their pupils dilate as they realize like, yes. And I, and, you know, I think a good example is Leon Ware who had 10 brothers and sisters. He was the youngest like you, his dad worked at Ford motor company in Detroit. How on earth at age 14 did he sing on a stage to at 16 singing with uh, Yusef and, and eventually writing hits for the Isley brothers and Michael Jackson and Quincy Jones. It's like, that's a different blueprint than appearing on American Idol and winning a golden ticket, you know? <laughs> and and Leon is still, you know, rest in peace. Leon Ware is still so unsung. You know, the, the heads know, of course. But and then maybe the the ones who, who are real Marvin Gaye fans would, would find his name, but he's still so unsung. And you know, I, I got to know him over the last almost almost 20 years of his life, I guess. Um we connected before I moved to the States. And once I moved here, I, I get to you know, hang out at the house with Leon and his wife, Carol. And man, Leon, that man obviously has stories. Like, you you, you don't, you, you know, you, you wouldn't just pop around there for a quick, yeah. quick hello. <laughs> it's like, okay, let me, let me just bla- block out the rest of today. And we're going to go around and have stories and smoke and just chill and kick it. And, and then of course, you know, we'd be, you know, we'd be making music, but what might regularly be a two-hour session and session of productive work, you know, every five minutes something sparks another story, and I'm not going to be like, "No, man, we, we we need to work." It's like, no, I need to hear these stories, you know. <laughs> so, so it would take like a year to finish a track <laughs> because of the stories, and and that's why that's why I started this podcast because there's a million of those people, right? You you got uh, little John Roberts, oh my his God. high school teacher introduced him to Wynton Marcellus, and yep. from there he went to Berkeley. Next yep. thing you know, he's on tour with Janet Jackson. Fill in the gaps. You have years yeah. of stories in between that. Yeah. Yeah, man. I mean, Little John's the truth. He, he's the first drummer I played with in America, actually. I knew this vocalist named Julie Dexter in Atlanta, who was from Birmingham, UK. So I know her. I knew her through the UK. So I hit her up. I was like, Julie, I'm coming out. You know, can you do a show with me? And, and I need a drummer. You know, I need like I need I need a jazz drummer who can play pocket, who can play broken beat, who can play with them play with the mpc who can improvise you know, i was like gave him, gave him this whole list and she's like it's cool i got you like didn't even like not it didn't even pause like i got you and 
and I remember getting closer to the gig, I was like hitting her up. I was like, Julie, who, you know, who's the drummer? Are you sure it's, you sure it's cool? She's like, don't worry, I got you. And so Lil John and I meet on stage to play. Like there was a line check and then we played. No rehearsal, no sound check, nothing. And it was just like love, man. Like the way the two of us just melded together, it was crazy. And so it was quite a trip to, you know, I didn't know at the time that he is, you know, one of the greatest drummers in this country, like that have been and that is. And here's my first, you know, US drummer I'm working with. And and it's it's this cat. Like, yeah, we've had so much fun together. And we did one show actually at SF Jazz in um, San Francisco, which Eric Harlan put together, another great, great drummer. Um and it was basically a drum, a drummer thing. So Eric had himself on drums. He had Lil John Roberts on drums. He had Chris Dave on drums, and then he had me on, you know, beats and samples and keys and stuff. And then the, then the second half, Les Claypool joined us on bass. <laughs> that shit was insane. <laughs> so you wouldn't have had half these stories if you would have went to law school like your dad. There we wanted. go. I mean, but you know what? <laughs> like maybe a law degree might have. I might have treated some of those contracts better over the years. You know, I, uh, I, I definitely, yeah. I definitely fell for some shit. Like I had one record <laughs> that got some, it was it was a major label release, and and I'm friends with I'm friends with the A and R at this point. Like it's now you know 20 years later, but we had a conversation not too long ago. So long after the fact, you know, the album's reverted to me again. It's all it's done its thing, um, and he was like, "Man, I just I heard that album. I just loved it." It's like you know, I would have given you anything you wanted for that. Oh wow! I was like, what? <laughs> you know, and, and I, cause, because I, I took the first offer because for me at the time, I'm like, oh my god, someone wants to release it, and that sounds okay. And <laughs> but had I had a law degree, it would have been different. Don't feel bad though. You know, Adrian Young was going to go to law school. Oh yeah! Before he was a b boy, he was going to practice law. And last week, <laughs> la- I think just last week, he released a new Roy Ayers album on his jazz label. So how about that? Yeah, man. No, he's keeping it moving for yeah. real. For real. So, yeah, it happens. <laughs> well, let me ask you, in your life, are you still in a, in a selfish place in terms of artistry? Like, you're, you're forced to not tour. You can play gigs, but all you can be is kind of stagnant. But once the world opens up again, is, is life-work balance out the window? How are you going to approach your life moving forward? I think this is, this is definitely a, a pivot point for me. I've, I've literally been on tour for, for the last 20 years until March the 12th. I was on tour for 20 years. <laughs> that is, it's really exciting. I love to tour. I love to travel, meet people, play in different places. You know, if I put that all to the side, then we're talking about, you know, a lot of flights and flying is exhausting. I'm carrying like over a hundred pounds of equipment with me as well as my personal stuff. And it's, it's exhausting. It's taxing. And I've, I'd been kind of thinking I need to change this over the last few years, but it's like a hamster wheel. You know, it's a livelihood. It is fun. It's addictive. It's like, I'm always going somewhere. Um, But then, you know, coronavirus hits and I had no choice. The whole thing had to stop. And as soon as it stopped, you know, my, my whole calendar opened up and then these amazing opportunities started to come into my life, which all speak more to, to doing things in new ways. Um, you know, I work, I'm the founding artist in residence with La Saba Festival, which is this great online festival, which has, has allowed me to do a lot of creative things. Um, and then, you know, getting my live streaming chops together and, and just looking at different projects, which I could never commit to 
even like like Patreon. I avoided Patreon because I was like, well, I'm always traveling. So how am I, how am I going to be in one place to fulfill the commitment to my supporters? It feels great. Like, you know, my body feels so much better for not being cramped up in a plane every other day and in a, in a different time zone every other day and not carrying all this gear around every other day. And so, yeah, for me, this has been a, a really silver lining filled time. Um, and showing me that there's other ways to do this. So I, I do, I, I do want to be touring, but not the way I was before. You know, I'd love to have it in a position where I can just, you know, focus on the things I really want to do and not, not do, you know, seven gigs in seven days just because I have to. I, well, I always felt like you were kind of like your father in the sense where your father left New Zealand to go to Japan in his early 20s, and he went for three months, but he ended up staying a lot longer. Once you get to a new location, <laughs> whether it's whether it's London or L.A., you never know how long you're going to be there or what opportunities it could bring. I thought you were going to be bored out of your mind being in one place. But, I mean, you're right. You're, I mean, you're, you're taking advantage of these uh, uh, IG uh, live performances. I mean, you have a lot better Wi-Fi than Teddy Riley, I'll say. <laughs> and your Patreon is thriving. And um, so I'm, I'm glad that you, you, you view this as a pivot and you're thriving. It's good. I mean, I, I tell you what. On, so on March the 12th, um, I play with this great sax player named Haley Neiswanger. She has a band called May Sun. And so we had a May Sun gig at SF Jazz. So we were driving up to San Fran on May on March the twelfth, and listening to the governor, listening to Gavin Newsom talking, making a public address. We were like maybe two hours from San Fran, so we've been on the road for like five hours, and he announces the shutdown of all gatherings, um, over fifty people or whatever. We pulled over the side of the road. Haley checks her phone. She already had an email that the gig was cancelled. We're playing the next night at a venue in Oakland called Spirit House, which has since closed down permanently from the through this. Um, and of course, Spirit House were like, "We have to cancel that." And then we're sitting by the side of the road, and over the period of, of about an hour, both of our calendars just everything got cancelled. You know, I, I chilled for a couple of days just to kind of check out of the world, and then checking back in. For me, my first thought was, I don't think touring is ever coming back. I was, and I, when I say that, I was thinking, me flying three thousand miles to performing an app to perform one hour of relatively obscure music, I was just like, that shit is over. And you know, of course, touring is gonna, is is coming back. It'll look different, but I wanted to act like, okay, if this is this is over, what am I going to do? And then if it does come back, that's a bonus. But I knew I couldn't sit around and be like, okay, i got to wait this out and just wait for the gigs to come back. That just wasn't even an option. And I think it's, you know, the people like peers who I'm seeing thrive through this, um, many of them are the ones who are able to, to look at it like that. It's like, okay, this is, this is an opportunity moment. You know, we have, you know, individually and then collectively, we need to do stuff. Yeah. We don't want to work at the VHS factory while DVDs are getting pumped out. Well, exactly. I mean, you know, the, over the last few days, you see Cirque du Soleil went bankrupt. You know, Nike posted almost a billion dollars of losses and they're going to lay people off. And, you know, if Live Nation's doing their thing, it's like if these massive companies are in that kind of state of attrition, then it, I mean, it's pretty, it's, it's very clear. At the same time, venues announcing, we're now we're permanently closed or art galleries photographic galleries we're now online only permanently 
you know, these are daily conversations now. Yeah, and what did I do? I went on Bandcamp because I knew Bandcamp was going to give 100% of the proceeds uh-huh. to the artist, and I supported you. And this year, yeah, yeah, and another story, two tracks to do with Anthony Nicholson. It reminded me of Harry Whitaker's Black wow. Renaissance, where if you're talented enough, two tracks is all you need for a balanced, complete project. Man, that's 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 big that's big big praise. Thank you. Let I'm the, you know Harry Whitaker's Black Renaissance is that's one of my Desert Island discs. It's actually been an inspiration for me ever since I heard it. Like, you know, how to as as far as how to shape works and the the sweet like approach to to the whole thing, like it hangs together as one piece. And yeah, I, I mean, I I didn't think of that work, working in the collaboration with Anthony, but you know, we had a lot of fun, and he's he's one of my favorite house music producers, and I just. I set him up one day, and so we're, so the inevitable is like, well, let's work, and um, we made those two tracks, which which came out super nice. Um, but yeah, man, that Black Renaissance—that's that's a special one. It's going to be an exciting time, um, but at the same time, America, get your shit together, wear a mask, stay home, so my friend here can travel around our planet sharing music and good vibrations if he wants to. <laughs> but if he doesn't he's going to thrive either way but i, I do want to give you this time to uh you know plug your patreon uh your any websites any band camp so people can support you the way i'm supporting you man thank you like firstly i appreciate the support so thank you for that and um and you know the, and the things you've asked me are really informed and 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 you've thought about that so i, I appreciate that man totally so yeah the um patreon is where i'm focusing you know, the majority of my creative effort right now. Um, I've set that up with, there's like four tiers. There's like a monthly new music exclusive. I'm making a new track each month, especially for Patreon only. There's monthly live streams. We're doing community Zoom chats. We had a great one actually the other week. Just I asked everyone to bring a piece of music or an album they're inspired by. So we all shared that over Zoom and talked about that stuff. I'm doing like masterclass video lessons exclusive vinyl there's a whole lot of stuff there but i'm really i'm mostly excited there about you know it's building a community which is um you know you it's unified through everyone's support of what i'm doing but we're able to do that to to kind of reflect that back to each other and and keep the inspiration going so for me that's the main thing so it's patreon.com slash mdcl bandcamp is definitely the number one place to support people releasing music you know, most of the money goes back to the artists. So if people can check that out, that's always great. Um, just type in my name, Mark the Clive Low on Bandcamp. But yeah, I'm, I'm always happy to hear from people and just connect. I think that's one of the great things about tech now. You know, the, the fourth wall's gone and, you know, I could, I, could, I could make a lot of effort to be a mysterious, enigmatic creative, but I just don't think that's what I'm here to do. So I'm, I'm really happy to you know, open access and, you know, share ideas and, and, and build. I'm exhausted, man. Covering your life in just 40 minutes is a whirlwind, (laughs) but I I hope I did a good job and I really, really appreciate you being here, man. Man. Thank you. Thank you for your support. And yeah, man, thank you for doing bedroom Beethoven's. It's, it's, It's great. My honor, man. Thank you. Yeah.